Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Oh, I'm so glad you tuned into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Angela Ballantyne about clinical research involving pregnant women. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my background is in science and bioethics. I started out by doing a BSc in microbiology at Victoria University in Wellington. But as I progressed through that, I found I was really interested in genetics, but I was more interested in the sort of social and ethical questions surrounding these technologies than spending a whole lot of time sitting in the laboratory. Uh, So for my postgrad work, I was lucky enough to uh, move over to Melbourne and do my PhD with Justin Oakley uh, at Monash University. And that's just really when there was a growing focus on bioethics as a discipline. So I did my PhD in bioethics and spent most of my time at Monash, but also spent a year uh, working at Imperial College London. And during that PhD period, I was, uh, again, really fortunate to have the opportunity to go to the World Health Organization in Geneva a couple of times uh, in the role of intern and then sort of a junior staff member. And that was really fascinating uh, for me to get exposure to sort of global health policy and super useful to be able to see WHO um, and I suppose the sort of political context that they work in. And that was a nice reality check, you know, compared to sort of academic world um, where we can tend to be quite abstract and idealistic. So I had an interest uh, in bioethics and clinical research and global health policy. Right. So what was it that inspired you to study clinical research, including pregnant women, involving pregnant women? Well, I started out with a focus on clinical research. So my PhD looked at the issue of exploitation in relation to international research. So this is the essentially the outsourcing of research to low and middle income countries. You know, essentially the same process by which we outsource the production of sneakers. Uh, rich countries are increasingly outsourcing their research risk to low and middle income countries, uh, which means that populations in rich countries can then get access to new health interventions without ever having to bear any of the uh, risk or harm, or at least having borne a smaller proportion of the risk and harm than they were previously. So I was interested in questions of justice and how we distribute uh, the benefits of health research and the risks of health research. Most of my work in sort of international research looked at the overuse of certain populations in research. So it's really interesting for me to come across the literature on the exclusion of women in research and realize that there were actually a whole range of different injustices that could be brought about by the exclusion of certain groups from research. That was really fascinating. 
and uh, pregnant women remain these sort of therapeutic orphans in a way, you know, the most um, excluded group uh, of, you know, of all subgroups, uh, pregnancy and lactation are the areas where we have the least knowledge about um, particularly drugs, uh, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. So it's a really underexplored area. So that was interesting. Um, and also at that point in my life, I was pregnant. Um, so when I was doing a lot of this work around pregnancy, um, I went through three pregnancies and had three children. And it was just super, super interesting to see the role of pregnant women in the community, the degree to which people um, feel ownership of pregnant women and um, kind of offer unsolicited advice and tell you what to do. And so I had sort of a personal interest in issues around risk and decision-making in pregnancy and this kind of background interest in clinical research, and they came together. What role do ethics committees play? Personally, I, I think it's really hard for ethics committees to have a big influence here. So what we're looking at is kind of a historical exclusion um, of women from research. Now, to some degree, that's been addressed, but there's ongoing persistent exclusion of pregnant women. Um, I've sat on ethics committees in Australia and in New Zealand, you know, for many years and had some exposure to committees in the US. I think committees actually have quite a limited role. And in part, that's because they get the protocol largely already fully developed and often the funding is already in place. So I think ethics committees can often have a quite a powerful role in saying, no, you can't do that, right? Sort of taking elements out of the protocol, but it's very difficult for them to insist, I think, on new elements being included. Um, so I will always ask um, a study, why have you excluded pregnant women? Often this is stated in the protocol with no justification. Uh, and often they'll give us, you know, provide some sort of explanation. But I don't have any power as, a, as an ethics committee to say you must go back and redesign the protocol, get the relevant expertise, get the additional funding, um, you know, and include pregnant women. So I think uh, actually research funders have a more important role, researchers themselves. Um, and I think journals can also have a role in terms of asking um, why certain groups were excluded, but particularly um, this is sort of slightly tangential, but journals can have a really important role in requiring reporting of uh, outcomes by sex and gender and requiring um, sex and gender subgroup analysis. So there's a kind of a, a variety of players, but I think it is actually, you know, quite hard for ethics committees to, to do a lot. Yeah. Could you explain about the national and international research guidelines? Yes, so that's been really great in the last few years. What we have seen is um, as a result of lots of uh, important kind of academic and um, uh, health advocacy work, particularly by colleagues in the US and Canada, also in Australia, um, we're starting to see a much broader recognition of the problem uh, of excluding women from some types of research, failure to do sex and gender subgroup analysis, and the ongoing exclusion of pregnant women. So what we've seen recently is a shift in research ethics guidelines. So it was sort of the default position was um, pregnant women are vulnerable, um, you know, their fetus is vulnerable. The ethical thing to do is to keep them out of research at all costs. And if you want to include them, you know, it's on the researchers to really explain why. There's essentially been a shift in um, kind of their dominant academic view now is that exclusion um, so by default is unethical, that everybody, uh, all groups in society are entitled to the benefits of health knowledge, and that includes pregnant women. And so therefore the assumption is inclusion, unless there is a good 
justification for why pregnant women shouldn't be included in the study, right? So it sort of put, it shifts the burden of proof on researchers to explain why they're excluding them. Now, pregnancy um, is complex. There are lots of good reasons why you might not include pregnant women in some studies. Um, so uh, it's not saying, you know, across the board, they need to be enrolled in every single study, but that the it's up to the researchers to look at the existing literature to actually consider that question and then build the argument. So we've seen that in the academic literature, and recently we've seen that um, start to emerge in uh, health guidelines. So one of the international guidelines that's quite influential is the Council for International Organizations of Medical Scientists, COMS, and they produce international research ethics guidelines, uh, and their position is now that the uh, health research with pregnant women is a priority and should be promoted. So that's great to have that clear statement. Um, the Australian National Statement says... Uh, provides guidelines for the inclusion of pregnant women, but doesn't actively state that uh, such research should be promoted. Um, the New Zealand guidelines, which were revised last year, take quite a strong position and again say um, the ongoing exclusion of pregnant women is unjust and harmful uh, and endorse this new default position that women, pregnant women should be included unless there's a good reason not to. So we've seen a real shift in guidelines in the last couple of years. Who are the trial sponsors and funding agencies? There's really a mix. So you see, um, obviously, you've got pharmaceutical companies, um, biotech companies investing in health research. You've got public agencies. Um, there's a lot. I think we've got more levers to work with, with, with public agencies. So to an extent, you know, um, pharmaceutical companies are businesses. Um, they're kind of, and I think, you know, reasonably, that's their role within the kind of, world system we've set up um which can be critiqued on its own grounds but you know i don't think personally that it's fair to ask pharmaceutical companies who are set up as businesses to act as um you know act against their own commercial interests so i think we've got a lot more levers with public funding agencies um so we do see at the national institute of health in the u.s who's one of the biggest global public health research funders a real acknowledgement of the problem of the exclusion of Pregnant, pregnant women and women. So in 1993, um, the National Institute of Health uh, had new legislation in America that required specific targets and inclusion of ethnic minorities and women in research. And what NIH actually does is, as part of reviewing an application, a funding application, they'll look at the existing literature and say, well, you know, there's a gap here. So we would actually like you to over-recruit, you know, um, Asian uh, people for this study or we'd like you to over recruit women and these are your targets and we'll fund you to meet those targets and if you don't meet them your funding for the next year um, will be in jeopardy so that uh, is probably the strongest lever that we've seen I mean Australia and New Zealand have policies but don't actually have those kind of financial levers to require um, that these targets are met now my next question um, is what are the benefits of including pregnant women in clinical research? Now, I think you've partly mm. answered that. Would you like to say something further on that topic? Well, just, I suppose, really specifically, I mean, so pregnancy is physiologically complicated, right? So there's um, often uh, women um, who have chronic conditions might have to adjust their medication during pregnancy. Pregnancy can bring on its own host of um, phys physical challenges, and those can be uh, challenging both for the fetus and for the mother. 
So essentially, as a community, we would want to know quite a lot about the health of pregnant women and the fetus. We also know from um, kind of epidemiological and epigenetic research that conditions um, during the pregnancy can have quite a long-term impact on the health of the fetus. So this, to me, I think is a community priority. We want to know about the health of pregnant women. And actually, we know very, very little about that. And this puts clinicians and pregnant women in the position of having to make decisions about their health and disease and treatment in a vacuum, right, often, with, without the appropriate evidence to inform those decisions. And that can be quite shocking when you're actually pregnant. You're used to going into, um, you know, someone like me, I'm used to going into the doctor and also Googling, you know, enormously about any medical condition I think I have and finding out, you know, a lot of information. And then you get to pregnancy and there's just, you know, there's just so little information. And that's, um, you know, enormously frustrating, I think, for pregnant women themselves and for clinicians, but it's unjust and harmful for pregnant women as a population. So the benefits of including pregnant women in research is really that we build an appropriate evidence base to inform their care and support their health and well-being. So what are the recommendations for researchers and the Research Ethics Committee to consider? Um, so I think, as I've said, there's a range of different players and they can have different roles. So you're, um, you've mentioned the Research Ethics Committee, there's the researchers, um, journals, I think, also have a role as well, as do funders. So the first thing is to consider where the gaps in the literature are and the extent to which your research can address some of these gaps. And so I would refer to this as taking a sort of social justice lens to your research. Often researchers have a really interesting intellectual question, um, but it would be great if in addition to that, we can systematically um, start training researchers to look at gaps. Who are the underserved populations here? It might not be pregnant women. It could be, um, you know, indigenous groups. It could be refugee groups. You know, there's all, it could be... Um, LGBTQIA groups, right? Where are the gaps in the literature and to what extent can you add a kind of social justice lens to your research and adjust your research so that you're helping to plug some of those gaps while still pursuing the area that you're interested in? The next point is don't exclude by default, right? So the appropriate inclusion of men and women in research um, needs to be addressed all the way from doing basic cell and animal research. So we know, for example, that even animal and cell research primarily relies on male models, um, even though we know that there are differences, even in you know, male and animal mice models between um, the way different diseases play out for male and female mice. So we need to be looking at um, these kind of sex and gender questions all the way from basic cell research through animal and genomic research studies in both observational and interventional research and in the social science research. It's also kind of interesting um, studies coming out now looking at uh, product development. So there's a great book called Invisible Women that looks at the ex exclusion of women um, in product development, including, for example, um, you know, seatbelts, uh, um, safety tested using a male physical body, you know, and as a result, women are 73% more uh, likely to die in a crash, even if they're wearing a seatbelt, right, because their bodies are different sizes. Um, we know that PPE fits uh, is designed to fit a male doctor rather than a female doctor, um, and there's you know, potential safety and ergonomic issues there. We know that um, surgical tools are designed to fit male surgeons' hands and that female surgeons have higher rates of pain and need more treatment. So kind of across the board, <laughs> in many different types of research, we need much to be thinking much more consistently about the sex and gender elements and not excluding by default. There are sometimes reasons, good reasons, why you might um, 
design your research in a particular way that excludes some populations, um, but that has to be appropriately justified. And then once we've included women and pregnant women in research, we need to more systematically conduct sex and gender analyses of those results. Um, so I mentioned that the National Institute of Health requires that um, researchers uh, who receive funding include appropriate numbers of men and women. But a study of uh, papers funded by the NIH still found that um, you know, only a small minority, I think it was 20 something percent, actually, include, actually reported any outcomes by sex or gender or included any sex and gender analysis. So I think journals um, and ethics committees could require a checklist um, asking if the results, if the methodology includes, uh, will include sex and gender analysis uh, and journals can ask um, for that to be included in, in publications as well. So there's a few different levels we could we could operate on. Jeez, that's, that's really interesting. There's sort of things you, you'd never really think about usually yeah that's that's quite incredible isn't it now being 2021 what is the current situation regarding pregnant women having the COVID jab yeah so I mean this was a bit disappointing really um as I said there's been a big shift in sort of the dominant academic views about the inclusion of pregnant pregnant women and even in the um uh sort of national statements and international guidance so Pregnant women were excluded from all COVID vaccine studies, and this was despite uh, the recommendations of most public health experts and even, you know, task force and working groups in the United States. Uh, the World Health Organization uh, recommended that pregnant women be included in some studies, and none of this had any uptake. Um, in part, this is because studies were funded um, and, you know, uh, run by pharmaceutical companies, there is a significant concern about liability, I think, um, uh, from pharmaceutical companies, and that's one of the reason preg reasons pregnant women continue to be excluded. Also, I mean, obviously, there was an enormous rush to get the um, vaccines pushed through. So uh, complex populations such as pregnant women were excluded for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, that said, we've now seen, we've now had enough people vaccinated internationally that we're starting to get some data from registries. Now, this isn't the same as a carefully controlled clinical trial. You get sort of different quality information from a registry. Um, but some registries, you know, in the US have looked at uh, women who have been, pregnant women who have been vaccinated. Uh, and one included nearly 4,000 pregnant women who had received the mRNA vaccines and um, over 800 had completed their pregnancies. And they found out of that data, no obvious safety signals for pregnant people. So the CDC and other experts now recommend that pregnant women do get vaccinated, that the sort of um, the position is that the risks of COVID are greater than the risks of the vaccine. And we do know that pregnant women um, are at increased risk uh, of COVID. So they're 1.5 times more likely to be admitted to the intensive care unit, 1.7 times more likely to require mechanical ventilation. And that risk actually goes even higher if you look at older pregnant women between the ages of 35 to 44. Um, and there's some risk, increased risk of adverse birth um, outcomes as well. So we don't want pregnant women getting COVID. Um, it's really annoying they weren't included in the trials, but if you are listening to this and are pregnant, um, the official position is that there are, there's no evidence of increased risk um, of the vaccine for pregnant populations and the risk of COVID is much greater for pregnant women than the risk of the vaccinations. But really annoying, 
you know, that once again, um, we're having to do this kind of risk analysis uh, without the kind of data that other populations have. Could you tell us about the research into the lifestyle changes in pregnancy? Yeah, that was a little study we did um, a few years ago. Really interesting. And again, you know, I was pregnant at the time. So what I was interested in was the tension between public health authorities dictating to pregnant women um, long lists of how they have to behave and the concept of sort of safe and good mothers who follow these guidelines and sort of deviant um, pregnant women who don't. And there's been really interesting work in uh, feminist philosophy by uh, Quill Kukla, previously published as Rebecca Kukla, who's really criticised um, sort of risk discourse in relation to pregnancy for dichotomizing behaviours into safe or unhealthy, safe or dangerous. And that dichotomy is really false, right? So every activity we do involves um, some degree of risk and opportunity costs and we need to balance those risks against uh, the potential benefits and trade off those risks against each other um, and you know Anne Liley in the US and her colleagues have argued that they this goal of achieving zero risk in pregnancy whether that's sort of through clinical care or um, healthy lifestyles is really impractical right and it's, it's totally disproportionate to the way we think about risks at other points in our lives even in relation to children we don't aim for a zero risk approach to parenting, right? We expose our children to a range of risks because we think the trade-offs are worth it, right? Like I let my son go to parkour because I think um, uh, the trade-offs of what he learns are worth the risks. And he's the sort of child that injures himself all the time. And we also expose our children to risks, you know, just because we want to, like I'll put my kids in the car um, and expose them to the risk of a car accident because I want to go and buy a donut, um, right? So the, the whole sort of zero risk philosophy for pregnancy is quite unique and unhelpful. So we were interested in how pregnant women sort of work through this multitude of guidelines telling them what to do. Um, and we found that actually pregnant women in our study um, were really uh, intentional um, about how they processed information. They were taking a very active role in looking at competing information about um, how they should um, what sort of healthy lifestyle behaviors they should adopt. And they were involved in quite complex reasoning and decision-making. Um, but to get to that point, they had to work through quite a lot of anxiety and information overload. Uh, they were really frustrated with the inconsistency of guidelines, some telling them to eat certain foods, others telling them to avoid it. Lots of guidelines that say avoid all these foods. And then if you look at some of the epidemiological studies, you find that pregnant women who have ignored the guidelines actually had you know, children um, that were ranked as healthier on various matrices subsequently. So lots of inconsistency. And that pregnant women found um, you know, the information that's given to them about health promotion during pregnancy really um, quite overwhelming. Yeah, I think just one extra point on that. I think it's really um, it's interesting to look at some of the data around how many women actually follow the guidelines. So in New Zealand, only about 3% of pregnant women um, have been found to meet minimum uh, targets for all the different food groups. So that would be sort of protein consumption, vegetable consumption, um, so on. So only 3%. So 97% of pregnant women are not meeting the minimum national targets. In Australia, a study in 2001 found that only 1.5% of pregnant women were getting the nutrient reference value. So that's like folate, iron, calcium. And no woman, 0%, met all of the Australian healthy food group recommendations. So I think there's just a massive disconnect 
if you've got the Australian government saying these are your minimum requirements for healthy pregnancy and you've got 0% of Australian women doing that. And as far as I can tell, not that many people are interested in understanding pregnant women's own reasoning about how they're navigating that situation. Um, You're just getting more and more health promotion from centralized agencies, you know, louder and louder. And I think pregnant, you know, we're really missing an opportunity to understand how pregnant women um, reason and navigate um, these kind of complex decisions. Jeez, yeah, that's that's really interesting. What are the actual views of pregnant women about participation in clinical research? Great question. So, I mean, obviously they're mixed, um, and that's completely fine. <laughs> um, so, just as I was saying, sort of previously, pregnant women are. You know, pregnancy, I think, often requires a big shift in information processing and reasoning, and women will um, navigate that their own way. But there is a decent minority of pregnant women who are interested in participating in research. So a couple of different studies. Um, Nina Wilde and Nicola Bela Androno found in a study in Germany um, that if you ask people, you know, do you want to participate in interventional clinical research in the abstract, pregnant women were very averse to that. But if you gave them specific scenarios, so for example, you said, imagine you have this medical condition. Um, we don't, doctors don't know anything about how to treat that condition in pregnancy. This study would be led by clinicians. Um, it would randomize you to two interventions, both of which um, are interventions you might get in the hospital anyway. Uh, and so it's not outside um, the kind of clinical care you would expect. But in the process, we can generate some information that will help other pregnant women in the future then they were much, much more willing to consider participating in a clinical trial. So I think often it's not, often pregnant women don't realize um, how sort of poor the evidence base is until they um, experience a health challenge. Um, And then they're often quite motivated to actually contribute to the advancement of science. So another study in the US found that as well, um, that one of the primary motivating reasons for pregnant women to join a study um, of the H1N1 uh, vaccine was a desire to advance science. And the study that we did, we looked at women who had participated in a probiotic study in Wellington. Now, obviously, probiotics during pregnancy is, is a very low risk um, sort of intervention. And I was interested in the study because um, I had participated myself. So I knew why I had participated and my reasoning, um, but I was really interested to get some funding. And we had another person interview um, 20 other women who had participated. And obviously that's a little bit biased because we're not interviewing the people who didn't participate. But the but the but some of the interesting findings there were just how invested the women were in the research study, right? They really cared about the research question, which was looking at um, whether probiotics could prevent um, asthma and eczema and other allergy-related conditions um, for children. They uh, were really interested in the outcomes. They said that their family and friends were really excited about the study, really positive and and interested in it. Um, They felt like they were playing a valuable kind of civic and community role. uh, And they were also um, interested in possibly benefiting themselves. Um, Although because it was a placebo controlled trial, they were at the same time frustrated that I I suppose the drawback of the research was that they were not able to take probiotics themselves. So, Um, they did feel like that was possibly a burden given that probiotics might be helpful in preventing these conditions. Um, But they were really um, altruistically committed to improving the evidence base on this question. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? No, I think those are those are the main points. Yeah, I mean, I think it's for me, it's just fascinating um, the way we think about risk in pregnancy um, and the way the community sort of d- dictates to pregnant women how they should behave. Um, and I think sort of efforts to remove pregnant women's agency in some way, um, if not you know overt, and that's kind of implicit in the process. And really interesting to me the way pregnant women um, sort of have pushed back in various of these arenas um, and are really interested and in, in committed to improving the evidence base um, for pregnant women in the future. So do you have any future study plans? Not specifically on this topic. I'm wrapped up at the moment um, looking at uh, some big data research and um, looking at precision medicine. But I think one area that we are going to see um, on this topic in the future is AI. So the role of artificial intelligence um, coming into the health space uh, and providing clinicians with sort of um, clinical guideline decision support, uh, that's gonna be really interesting. And that's going to have a big impact in my view on health delivery, say in the next um, sort of two decades. What we're seeing from AI is that the output of AI is only as good as the input. And so any biases in the existing health literature are going to get amplified uh, when that data is used to train AI-based interventions. So the lack of women in certain um, uh, data sets is already a problem. We see that already influencing clinical guidelines for certain conditions. So for example, again, you know, cardiovascular disease is still defined. The risk factors are still primarily understood based on male risk factors. So that's a problem in the current clinical evidence base, but it's going to be even more of a problem, you know, as AI becomes dominant. Um, and the lack of data around pregnant women is going to, um, again, be just exacerbated when we look at these data-driven technologies. So I think we'll see that coming up in the future. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking with Associate Professor Angela Ballantyne about clinical research involving pregnant women. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.